communion. We're going to take communion together after our message. Uh, because we're talking about it, we're not just trying to be cute, but we do want for you to be able to have the meal and for that to have the last word this morning uh, and not for me to have the last word. So we'll do that here in just a little bit. Uh, and while you're opening up to 1 Corinthians 11, I'm going to uh, mention again uh, that this month is a focus period for us on our small group communities. Uh, today, here we are in a large group community in our worship service, and it's a blessing to be here. But we know as a church that a lot of the nitty-gritty things in life uh, where the rubber really meets the road, that stuff happens in smaller settings. And so we hope for every one of our members, uh, for our regular attenders, to be able to engage in small group communities where you can pray for each other, support each other. And if you would like to get involved through our website, you can sign up, you can notify us that you want to be in a group. This month we'll contact you and we'll help you find a group. So we hope that's a blessing to you. And I would be remiss if we uh, began the message this morning without thanking our guest team uh, who is helping many of you this morning with umbrellas, helping people get in out of the rain. Can we just tell them thank you for what they're doing for us on these rainy mornings? It's much appreciated. Why don't we have a, a word of prayer together and then we'll begin. Our Father in heaven, uh, we are so thankful that we get to be here together, united in the covenant community that Christ created in his own blood. What you did, God, through Jesus Christ, what you did for us is so remarkable that you took people who hated each other and you made a union out of it. Uh, you took people who, who loved each other but yet had a lot of brokenness and you healed so much brokenness uh, inside of Israel and inside of the nations as you brought them together in this new community that we call the church. And, and Father, in a time when we see much unrest, much uh, ethnic hatred, much cultural divide, much political divide, and in so many other ways we see brokenness in the nation around us, in the world around us, we pray that you would continue through your spirit and through the word to heal, to draw those into this covenant community, uh, to teach us love and to give us unity. And Lord, it's in the name of Jesus that we pray and all who agree say amen. Okay. Last week we started here and I feel it's appropriate for you to see this, even if you didn't uh, get to be here last week or uh, since we've all slept since then. Uh, this was our takeaway from last week, that communion, what we often uh, refer to communion as the Lord's Supper or the meal, communion in its original meaning isn't actually the thing we take. Communion isn't the elements that we take, although that's a fine name for it. But communion, koinonia in the New Testament, this idea of community is something that we are. And so from ancient times, the churches talked about the saints, about not, not about the saints as in like the people who get their picture up on the wall in a church or the people who get a candle or a feast day named after them, but the regular saints like you and me, the people who are Christians that worship together, that the New Testament calls the saints, that those people are a communion, that we're a community made by the Holy Spirit, forged in Christ's blood, and that we have a union that's very deep. And so communion is something that we 
are. And today, you may want to write this down. This, uh, this is our takeaway from this morning, and we'll work through the text uh, and state this again before we're done. But the Lord's people, that's us, uh, like His meal or like His supper, unite where others divide. Okay, God's people are called to great unity in the common things of life that often cause division in other places in the world, in other settings in the world. And so God's people, like his supper, unite where others divide. Let's talk for a moment about communion or the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. I shared these scriptures with you a week ago, and last week we read from 1 Corinthians 10. Today we're going to read from 1 Corinthians 11, and these two passages are two of only a handful in the New Testament that describe this important part of our worship. In fact, the passage we're reading from today is 18 verses long. It is the longest single passage about the Lord's Supper in the whole New Testament. It's longer, in fact, than all of the accounts where Jesus instituted the meal in the Gospels. It's longer than even the longest one of those. It's, it's probably about the same size as if you added them all together. So this one passage is the most significant look in the New Testament at what was going on in a specific church community, that's the church that met in the city of Corinth, and a problem that they had, and how this meal could correct it. In fact, as we get into the text, you should know that it breaks down in these four ways. This, this might help us understand what Paul is doing. Uh, I'm, I'm certain that if you grew up in the churches of Christ, you heard this passage read and taught many times. And that's a blessing. It's a beautiful passage. In fact, many Sunday mornings, when we sit around the table, uh, or really we sit in these pews and someone shares thoughts from the table and then we take this meal probably many, many times someone has read from this chapter to help us focus our thoughts, to consider the Lord, to remember the teaching. And so it's important for us as we, as we get a fresh look at it today to understand what Paul was doing. And so there's these four paragraphs in this reading, four paragraphs, and they build on each other. They're not independent, but they are dependent on each other. And so the first paragraph Paul lays out a problem uh, in the Corinthian church, a specific issue that's going on. And we'll describe that in just a minute. And then, in order to address the problem, in verses 23 to 26, Paul reminds them of the teaching. Okay, Paul will remind them, what did Jesus teach about this meal? And so he's going to remind them of the teaching. And then, in the final two paragraphs... Paul describes some application for the church. What would be the takeaways for the church in Corinth based on that teaching of Jesus? So let's move through it together. And the first paragraph, if you're following in your bulletin, has this theme. This is the first paragraph. Your gathering in Corinth, your gathering does more harm than good. This is the problem in Corinth. Your gathering does more harm than good. Read from the text with me here on the screen. I'll read it out loud and you can follow along. Paul wrote to them, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. In other words, I'm not happy with what you're doing. Earlier in the same chapter, he said, I do commend you for remembering uh, some of the things I taught you. Now he says, I don't commend you. We're out of sync here. And I want you to notice what he says. He says, when you come together, 
When you come together, in the Greek text, this is a single word, and it just means like when you gather together, and Paul's going to use this word five times in this passage because the theme of the passage is coming together. The theme, like we had read from chapter 10 last week, when we take this meal, we become spiritually, in a mystical way, one body. And so the theme has to do with union. And so Paul uses this word, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Why is this? Why is it for the worse? Paul describes it. He says, for in the first place, when you come together, in other words, highlighting for them a second time, this should be a time of union when you come together as a church I hear there are divisions among you. And so you're, you're coming together in a physical sense, but actually you're not united. And so you're not really effectively coming together. This, this coming together is ineffective. There's still divisions among you. And Paul says, I even believe it in part. You may remember, if you're familiar with this letter, that in chapter 1, Paul already commented on some divisions in the Corinthian church, some very troubling factions in the church where people are following different spiritual leaders and not uniting. Instead, they're dividing. He says, I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, many of the scholars think that this is a use of irony by Paul, where he's saying there, there would have to be divisions among you so that we can see who the best Christians are, because Paul wouldn't believe that there's actually better Christians or worse Christians. He believes there's the church, all are broken, but all matter, and in that church, there shouldn't be divisions based on who is best. He'll spend the next three chapters trying to teach the Corinthian church that there's no such thing as a Christian that's better because of spiritual giftedness or because of some talent that the Spirit gave, but all are part of one body. He'll go into this again in the next chapter. So Paul surely doesn't believe that these factions are a good thing. He continues. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And I want these words to sink in for you for a moment. I want you to hear what he's saying. You're eating the meal. Remember, they've come together to eat a whole meal. They ate more than just the little bit of bread and the little bit of juice. They, in the early church, they had a love meal, and so this would have been an entire banquet occasion. This would have been like maybe similar to a Church of Christ potluck, and we know how good those are. Those are a blessing. Amen, church? In fact, who wants us to have a potluck sometime in the next year? Wouldn't that be great? We ought to have one. Okay, so let's, let's consider that, but this should be a blessing, this big meal. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. And this is even more striking in the original language because the word meal and the word supper are the same word. And so, and they're modified by Lord or by your own. And so in the original language, this is kind of what you would hear. You would say, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, but in eating, each one goes ahead with his own supper, okay? So in other words, you're taking your own personality, your individualism as a culture, and you're making that the centerpiece of the supper. You have taken it away from the Lord, ripped it out of his hands, and made it your own. And one goes hungry, and another gets drunk. You could sense why this would be an abuse in the church. But the question for the modern reader would be, why does this happen? Why in the church would you have some people 
that are leaving the meal still not filled and others who have partied the place where they've gotten drunk and they've gotten full and they've eaten all of the rich food. Well, let's walk through this a moment. Let's, let's set our minds for a moment in an ancient Corinthian context. The Romans and the Corinthians were part of this Roman culture, used dining rooms like the one that's in the picture behind me when they would eat their fancy meals with friends of a similar uh, social standing. And all throughout the Roman Empire, there was these groups and clubs that would get together for dinners. Very similar in some ways to what the early church does. They would come together at a house. Remember, there weren't church buildings early on. And there weren't even fellowship halls for many of these societies. They would come together at a house. And there was a room like this one. And that room actually looks pretty big. You would imagine a church like the church in Corinth that had 50 or 60 members could probably squeeze everybody into that room if we were using chairs and lining them along the wall the way we do in modern America. That's not a small space. But this is not the way that the ancient Corinthians and Romans used this dining room. This dining room had a particular name. It's kind of a funny word. It's, uh, um, let's see if I can say it right. It's triclinium. Okay, triclinium. And what that means is, it means three recliners. Okay, so this is like, this is where you say, I get to come to church potluck and get a lazy boy, right? That sounds like a good deal, but there's only three of them. Imagine if at the potluck we had three recliners and the first people to get there, the people who arrived early got those seats. Everyone else wasn't even allowed to sit in the same room. Instead, you had to go out into another area. And these are pictures of what the triclinium looked like. And so you can see there, there's three benches. Uh, they have a padding on top. This is a reconstruction, of course, but you can find a myriad of pictures like this online. And they would put the food around that little table in the middle. Sometimes they would put a table in the middle that everyone could reach, and the people would come in on the fourth side to serve the food. And so they would recline there, and they would eat, and they would lay on their side. It's very, very strange to us. It's very different. And you can't get as many people in a room like, like we do with chairs, where people take less square footage of space. So here's a, a picture, you know, an artist rendition of what they would look like. And you notice that massive room, right? And there's only about nine that are laying there because they take up all this space as they lay horizontal. And the scholars say that in these rooms, these dining rooms, only nine to 12 people would fit at one time. Nine to 12 people would eat this best food in the best room and everyone else would have to find somewhere else in the Roman house to eat. And so maybe they'd go out into the garden or maybe they would go out into the atrium where sometimes there was a pool of water and they might have to sit on the ground. There was no cushions provided for them. And what it seems like is happening in the church in Corinth is that some of the wealthy people are going into that one small room called the triclinium and the rest of the people People are having to eat somewhere else or separately. There is, a, there is a, a strata in society where a division is occurring because of the cultural way that they eat their meals. Not only that, but in their society, the regular laborers did not get a day off, and so they would come to church meetings after they were done working. Most of the wealthy people would meet far earlier in the day, have a chance to eat for a while before the rest of the people came, the poorer people came. And so, in so many of the social meals in the Roman Empire, it enhanced the division between the members of the society. And it seems like, in this message, this is what is happening 
in Corinth. So to review, these three things are what Paul says are the problem. There are divisions among you. Each eats his own supper instead of the Lord's supper. And these two things, Paul will say, humiliate other Christians by dividing them into upper and lower classes. Look at how Paul says it humiliates them. He says in fairly strong language, What? Do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And so with a little outburst of passion, Paul says this cannot be the way that the meal continues in Corinth. This would not represent God's church well. It shows that you despise the church when you do things in this way. From here, Paul moves on into some teaching. How can we correct this? And so he gives them a reminder. The reminder is this. Christ made a new covenant community in his blood. Christ made a new covenant community in his blood. Look at how Paul says it. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And this is the familiar reading to us, isn't it? This is the recap of what Jesus did that one night in the upper room, maybe also reclining with about 12 people around the table. Interesting that that's where it started. He says, what I received from the Lord I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And Paul plays with his words again a little bit here. Because when I deliver this to you, the word that that I delivered this to you is the same word. As, as when it says Jesus was betrayed. It's the word that means he was delivered or handed over. And so Paul plays a little word trick with them here, and he says, just like Jesus was handed over, I handed the teaching on to you. And so you received it. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body. And look at what Jesus said. My body is for you. And again, this is in the plural, it's for you all. But my body is broken for you. To help you come to God. To bring you together in unity. For your sake, this body is broken. For you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And covenant language, we'll talk a little bit more about covenant language next week. But covenant language is something that we've kind of lost in modern American society. Maybe this would be the closest example that that we commonly think of today as the covenant of marriage, where we make solemn vows in front of family and friends and in front of God to bind people together. And next week when we look into covenant a little further, you'll be reminded and you'll see again how strongly the people of God thought about covenants especially a covenant that was sealed by blood. And Jesus says, with my blood, what I did was I bought in front of God and in front of all of these other witnesses, your union. I paid for it. I sealed it. It's secure if you would honor it. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so again, let's review the teaching. These are the things that Paul said would help fix the problem in Corinth. First of all, my body is for you. 
Secondly, my blood binds you in covenant community. And then third, when we proclaim the Lord's death by taking the meal, we, we reenact in a way his broken body and his shed blood poured out by taking these elements. We remember that our Lord led sacrificially, that it was his body given freely that formed the bind, that formed the covenant that brings us together. He did not lead selfishly. The meal started from a place of sacrifice, not self-centeredness. And so the meal ought to continue as a way of sacrificing for others and not as a place of self-centeredness. Do you see how beautifully Paul addresses the problem of selfishness in Corinth by reminding them that Jesus did this through his death? Now Paul moves into application. What does he want the Corinthian church to do differently? And he tells them, take care to eat worthily. Take care to eat worthily. Let's read it again. Bill read this for us a few minutes ago. This passage, maybe above all others, stands out in my mind from my young childhood attending church as the instructions that were given for how you should take the supper. And so it's fascinating that as we read it more, the, the longer that we grow and mature, the more deep and meaningful these instructions become to us. Let's read them together. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. How many of you, like myself, have sat uh, taking communion in a church somewhere at some time and wondered, am I good enough for this? How many of you have ever sat there? It's okay. In fact, let's, let's put hands up for this one. If you've ever sat there and you've thought, am I good enough for this this morning, would you be brave enough to put your hand up and say, it's okay, I've done that. Yeah, me too. I've sat there and I've wondered, did my sin this week disqualify me from being part of this union? Has God looked at me in a way where I'm now excluded or where I'm not part of this body because of the way that I've been acting? And so it's important for us to look at what Paul says again because I think that all of you who have been a Christian for any number of years know this, like I do. You will never come to this meal perfect. You will never show up without sin in your life. Repentance is always a great thing when we consider our Lord. Repentance is always a beautiful thing when we realize God is still making my life more holy like he is holy the way that he wants it to be as time goes on. That is always an appropriate thing, but it is not exactly what Paul says here. He does not say, make sure that you are worthy. And I want you to write this in your bulletin if you're taking notes. This word, unworthy manner, is an adverb, not an adjective. It is an adverb in the original language. What does this mean? It means that the word is modifying the action, not the individual. And so what Paul says very literally here is not make sure that you are up to snuff before you eat the supper. Make sure that you are golfing par this week. Make sure you haven't made an error or a transgression. He says when you eat it, eat in a worthy manner. And from the setting of what we've been talking about all morning in Corinth, what he means has something less to do with your personal ability for holiness and something more to do with the way you look at those around you and whether this meal is binding you to them or dividing you from them. Make sure you eat it in a worthy manner or you'll be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then 
There's no tricks here. He literally means examine yourself. Think internally about this situation. But again, in the context, he means consider and examine yourself whether you view this body of Christians in the way that God would have you. Do you see them as also purchased in the covenant blood of Jesus and worthy of eating in the same room and worthy of eating the same quality of food? Are they worth your time, Corinthians, that you would wait until they get off work so that you can all sit and eat the supper of community together instead of being you know, bloated and, and, and all fattened and drunk by the time the regular people arrive? Think about it, Corinthians, and examine yourself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And historically here, there are two ideas of what the body can mean, and they're both right. Does the body mean Jesus' body on the cross broken for you? Of course it does. What other body could he mean but the one that sanctified you and redeems you and unites you in this covenant? And yet, just in chapter 10, Paul had gone to all of the effort to say that when we participate in the koinonia of this meal, we are one body. And in chapter 12, he'll go on at great length to say, therefore, though we are many members, we are one body. We participate in the body of Christ. And when we discern the body, we not only see him on the cross and see him laid in the tomb and see him victorious raised from the dead, but we see our brothers and our sisters in his fingers and his elbows and his eyes and the hair on his head, and we see that they have been bound to him in the same meal that we've been bound to him. Amen, church? Amen. And this is why Paul says many of you in Corinth are weak and ill and some have died. This is very severe. Paul says some of, some of you have even passed away because you failed to see what the meal was supposed to do. You have missed the point. You've made it selfish and self-centered and you have lost the original teaching. But if we judged ourselves truly, if we looked inside and asked, how do I act how do I lean? How do I respond to these people whom Christ died for? Then we would not be judged. And when we are judged by the Lord, when he convicts us that I have not had the right attitude towards the Lord or towards the Lord's church, his holy communion, we are disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. This passage was never a passage to warn you that you are next to condemnation. It was a passage to lead you away from the potential of condemnation so that you could know with security when I take this bread and I drink this cup and I love the Lord's church, that is the closest thing on this this side of eternity that I can do to show the Lord love for himself because he says whoever does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love the one he has not seen. He says, therefore, do for each other as I have done for you. Love one another. The greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And these are fulfilled in the way we take the meal. So finally, Paul leaves them with this Last application. He says, let your gathering be characterized by patience, not judgment. Let the time of worship and the eating of the meal be a time where you wait for each other. So then, my brothers, he returns to the language with which he started this passage. When you come together, when you're together for the sake of resealing the covenant again, 
when you're binding the bond of unity again through the meal, when you look at each other and recognize Christ in one another again, wait for one another, Corinthians. Wait. Don't start before the laborers show up. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. And so we're reminded that the Lord's people, like his supper, unite where others divide. Although those in the Roman groups, these fellowship halls, these meals within the society of Corinth, would use the meals as an opportunity to show who was privileged and who else was allowed in, although society today would still lead us often to think of each other where there are some Christians that are really close to God and some that are just barely allowed in the church building, Christ abolishes those mindsets through the meal. Everyone equally participates. Everyone gets a bite. Everyone gets a sip. And so we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's sing a song before we take communion together. Let the weak say I'm strong. 